You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a young man that approaches Jesus, and he's just identified as a rich, young ruler. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks a question that's asked of Jesus multiple times in the Gospels, but also a question that is asked of Jesus every single day all over our world. He says, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And that is the question, isn't it? What does it mean to be saved? What does it take to be saved? How is salvation and eternal life given to people? How do we become a Christian? And we talked about that last week, didn't we? The fact that the gospel reminds us that everything that we have is by grace through faith. That the gospel is about dying and living, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, when we put our faith and our hope in Jesus, makes us alive in Christ. And that is such incredibly good news. But there are still questions that follow after that. Big questions that go past what must I do to be saved? And so maybe these are questions that you've asked yourself. Maybe we ask questions like, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if my salvation is genuine? What if I do something really bad? Is there a way that, that I can lose my salvation? Is there a way that that can be taken away? Is there anything that can keep someone from being saved? And I would say, calm down. That is a lot of questions. Just kidding. Paul's going to answer all of those this morning. Because the reality is these are questions that if we haven't asked those, all of us at some point in time will ask those kind of questions. Am I really saved? Have I done something so bad that it's going to take that grace and mercy given to me by God and remove his patience and his love and leave me back where I started? Or looking around the world saying, is there someone who can't? Is there something that can be done that will keep someone from being saved by God's grace and God's mercy? And so we're going to dive back into this if-then hymn that Paul lays out for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And we're going to address some of those difficult and overwhelming questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ and if it's possible to have assurance of that hope. And so let's read this together in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are not afraid of our questions, that you don't get frustrated with us in our times of uncertainty and in our times of doubt. 
God, we thank you that you address these big questions through your word so that we don't have to feel like we're just lost and adrift at sea. And so, God, I want to pray a few things over our sermon today. First and foremost, that if there's anyone here that's never put their faith and hope in you, that's never been saved by your grace, God, that you would just remind them or maybe let them know for the first time that it's not about what they can do, but about what you have already done for them through Christ and that you would draw someone to salvation this morning. God, if there's anyone here that has put their faith in you, that's been through the waters of baptism and taken communion, been a part of a church, but is struggling with, did it count? Is struggling with the questions of, is it real? Am I really saved? God, I pray that you would give them assurance this morning and confidence. If there's anyone here who is tired, pray that you give them strength to be able to continue walking and working for the gospel and enduring until the end. And God, for all of us, that you would remind us Salvation is not based on or predicated on our ability to remain faithful to the covenant, but your ability to keep it. And that we would put our ultimate hope and trust in that truth. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at three words that go along with three of these big questions about how do I know, can I be sure, is there anything that can cancel out salvation, and what about the times when I sin and fall and mess up so badly, or is there even something, that a sin, that has the power to keep someone from being saved? And so the first word that we're going to look at this morning is endurance, and recognizing that endurance is a sign of our salvation. Paul begins here, because again, we looked at this first part. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. We saw that last week. Verse 12 now comes to this idea of if we endure, we will also reign with him. But I want to go to Hebrews chapter 6. And Hebrews chapter 6 is, is a difficult one. It's a passage of scripture that also often can cause confusion or uncertainty a passage of scripture that is argued over back and forth, especially when you find yourself in one of two camps. A belief and an understanding that salvation is a once and for all declaration that God gives to his believers, which as you're going to see is, is where we fall as a church, that if you are saved by Christ Jesus, you are saved once and for all. But then on the other side of that, will be the camp in the tradition that says that no, you can by your own works or by your own sin, lose that salvation. And look here in Hebrews chapter six, it seems like there may be some evidence for that. Paul said, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And then here's where it gets kind of hard. He says, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contend for the land that has drunk the rain often falls on it. 
and produces a crop useful to those who for its sake is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And so it seems there the writer of Hebrews is painting a picture about these people who had participated in every aspect of what we would consider Christianity. They were participating in the life of the church. They were participating in the sacraments, in baptism, and in communion. They were going about the life of the church, but then they turned and they walked away. Whether it was because the going got a little too tough, or they found something that they thought had worked better, or fell into a pattern of sin, whatever the case was, there was a group of people that were a part of the fellowship and the communion of the church that turned and walked away, and the writer of Hebrews says they would never be again reintroduced into the body and into the fellowship. And so then do we have to ask, are those people who were saved by Jesus that then now weren't? But if we continue looking, we see what the writer was getting at here. Because in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, this word that is used to describe the followers of Christ, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so what's amazing here in this passage that so often is used as ammunition to back a doctrine that believes that you can somehow do something that would lose your salvation or disavow your salvation from God. In the midst of that passage that can cause so much uncertainty, the writer of Hebrews here is pushing our hearts towards certainty and assurance saying that's the way that those people believe who didn't really, those people live who didn't really, those people act who didn't really receive the fullness of the salvation of God. That's what that looks like. To be participating and going through the motions, but never trusting in Christ and being saved by his grace. That's what that looks like. But for you, For those of you who have been saved by the grace and mercy of God, for those beloved children of God saved by his grace and mercy, for those of you who have been through the waters of baptism and know that your hope is in Christ Jesus, we believe better things for you, things that belong to salvation. Don't live like those people because God has saved you into something better. And so we have this hope and this picture of assurance. But what's the difference? At least for a time, both groups were doing the same things. How do we know if the salvation takes? How do we know if the baptism was real? How do we know if the salvation was genuine? We've seen last week that there is a very beautiful nature to this passage of scripture, this hymn that Paul quotes or maybe wrote. He says, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. And then here he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure. You see, at the end of the day, the full assurance of salvation comes at the end of the day. All throughout scripture, we see this idea of perseverance and endurance directly associated with salvation. 
And I've said this before, but it, it bears repeating because I know at least in my life, I don't put enough emphasis on the spiritual reality and necessity of endurance. That the Christian life is not just about a conversion that happens somewhere in the back of your life, but it is a process that we are being saved, being refined, being restored, and being led toward the finish line. The, the Christian life is not about being saved back in the distance and then just kicking back and, and just living through the rest of our lives, but it is about enduring until the end. And when we see this example in Hebrews of those who have fallen off that didn't endure, we see that as a recognition that the salvation that they proclaimed was actually just testing the waters of Christianity, just seeing what Jesus was like, but not really following after Christ. That that wasn't genuine salvation, but just people coming in and playing church for a season and going through the religiosity without any of the spiritual change or reconciliation. But again, there is that difficulty knowing that endurance is the ultimate realization of the truth of our salvation. We can be like, oh, well, do I have to wait till the very end? Do I have to wait until I breathe my last or till Christ comes again to know if I'm really saved? But no, that passage in Hebrews as well as this passage here in Timothy is drenched in confidence. This idea of endurance isn't meant to give us anxiety or to keep us guessing. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But it's designed to give us confidence in the life that we live and the hope that we have. The reality is if you're even asking that question of if I'm really saved, that is a sign of genuine inward salvation because it's pushing us towards this understanding of growing in our relationship with Christ. But even more than that, Paul describes salvation as running a race. He says, I run the race so that I might receive the prize. And I love that analogy because as long as you're running in a race, it's hard to forget that you're in it. Every step that you take in the midst of a race, you are being reminded that I am in this race. When those steps are strong or even when those steps are weak and frail, every single step is a reminder that yes, you are competing in the race. And in the same way as followers of Christ, our works and our lives are not just for the good of other people. They're not just for the mission of the gospel, but they're also for our benefit as well. We're not saved by our works, but we sure are assured by our works. That's one of the things that I love about our emphasis on liturgy as a church. Every week we gather together and we confess our sins, but we're also assured of our pardon. We confess our faith. We sing and we pray. We walk through the rhythms of the gospel and the rhythms of the New Testament each and every Sunday together as a reminder of you're still here. You're still in the race. God is still working and still saving you. And you are on a pathway towards endurance. And that should be a message of assurance. The acts of religion that we participate in, baptism and communion, ministry and service and love and mission, all of these things have an external purpose of spreading the gospel to the world and seeing people saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus and seeing hopeless and poor and oppressed people find truth and goodness and hope in the way that we love and serve them through the heart of Jesus Christ. But it also is a constant reminder of, you're still here. You're still saved. 
That salvation that God has given you is 100% yours. And that he who began that good work in you is going to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. And even in the times when our steps wander and falter, even in the times when we feel beat up and battered and bruised, we still have the Holy Spirit whispering those gentle words in our ear, reminding us of the things that we have done that are evidences of our salvation. And so we need to be the kind of people who cling to that endurance. And sometimes we'll be running strong. Sometimes we'll be gasping for air. But we need to remember that as long as we're moving in that direction, and we always are, the Holy Spirit is always going to be pushing us towards that goal. We have confidence that that work will be completed and finished in us. And on the other side of that, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And he'll bring us into the fullness of that kingdom. And so we need to be the kind of people who push toward our hope with assurance and confidence, not doubting or wavering. And we're going to talk even more about the ways that we can fight off that doubt and denial of the power of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that he's given us in our lives in just a moment. But we need to cling on to that assurance and that confidence, resting in God's grace, remembering that that is where our salvation came from, but finding confidence in our steps and our works, even when they're small and frail, as reminders of our salvation and to continue reaching towards our eternal hope. And so when we ask the question, how do we know that we're saved? The answer to that is through our endurance. Through the fact that the God who saved us is keeping us saved and giving us mile markers along the road through our works, through our assurances, through our church, through our hope. And that one day he will complete that on the day of Christ Jesus and our confidence and our assurance will be made whole. But then what about, what about the role that sin plays in this? Is there a sin so great that it can override the power of salvation, so to speak, or at least reject the power of salvation. The next word is denial. And denial is a tough word. The reality is all of us have heard that at some point in time, and it never feels good. It never feels good to be denied. So when you hear that on the, on the credit card machine, not a good noise. When you're taking a shot from the three-point line and somebody denies your shot, not that that's something that I've ever been familiar with because out of all the years I've been playing basketball, I've never been blocked, never had the ball stolen. I'm a perfect thousand percent, <clears throat> but it doesn't feel good. Speaking as someone who's never had that, I can imagine that it probably wouldn't feel very good. When you ask someone out on a date and they say no, again, a thing that's probably never happened to me before, but when you ask someone out on a date and they say no, that denial hurts. When you send in your application to the school of your dreams or to the job that you want and you get that letter back that says, sorry, you're not the one for us. It's painful to be denied. Jesus felt the same way. In fact, Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. And Paul reiterates that here, saying that if we deny him, then he will also deny us. As we've been talking about the gospel, we recognize this as the unmerited grace that covers all of our sins. And we see all throughout the narrative of scripture, 
just story after story of really bad people who did really bad things being radically saved by the grace and mercy of God and not only saved, but used for incredible things. But when we look through scripture, we find that there is something that gets in the way of that. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And to figure out what John means, let's keep looking. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30. Did I write that down right? I'm not sure I wrote that down right. Oh, I'm just looking in the wrong place. There it is. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he is an unclean spirit. And then again, going back to Hebrews chapter 6, reading again 4 through 8 here. It says, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they have fallen away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And when we look through those passages and see the others all throughout Scripture talking about this idea of this sin that is, in essence, unforgivable, the commonality that seems to come up over and over and over again is this sin that John says leads to death is a total rejection of the work of God and salvation. And it's a sin that leads to death. And we have this reality. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. And so clearly there is an understanding in scripture that there is something that can happen, something that can be done that will keep someone from the possibility of being saved by Jesus. And Paul summarizes that just as Jesus does saying, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, maybe you're like me. And when you read this passage of scripture, you get really nervous Admittedly, this passage and those words of Jesus are passages that have caused me incredible anxiety and fear over the course of my life. Because as I've said before, I am somebody who doubts easy and believes hard. And doubt has been a constant part of my life. Denial has been a constant part of my life. Apathy has been a constant part of my life. Atheism has been a part of my life. This total rejection and understanding, not just of Christ, but of God himself entirely, of everything that, that scripture says. 
And even now those doubts will creep in time and time again. And when they do, not only is it a struggle because I long to just be so intimate and close with God and to believe fully and totally the hope that I have in Jesus, but also there's that fear of, am I doing it? Am I denying him? Am I blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? What is this right now? But this isn't about doubt. This isn't about one really bad sin. And this isn't even about a season of unbelief. Think about Peter. Peter, who was the first one to utter a confession that Jesus was the Son of God. Peter, who had the faith to be able to step out of the boat and walk towards Christ. Peter, who walked with Jesus, saw Jesus not only heal the sick, not only feed the multitudes, but Peter saw Jesus raise people from death to life. He heard Jesus teach about the kingdom of God. He knew who Jesus was. And yet, while Jesus was dying on a criminal's cross, Peter spent his evening denying even knowing Jesus. And yet... On the other side of Pentecost, Jesus used Peter to build his church. And so clearly this passage isn't about simply doubting or having seasons of unbelief. This isn't about messing up from time to time or even being frustrated or angry. No, when we look at denial here, we're looking at the exact opposite of endurance. This kind of denial is a pattern of denial and unbelief that continues until the very end. It's not a moment of weakness. It's not a moment of anger. It's not a moment of doubt or anxiety or confusion. This is a pattern of unbelief and denial of the power of Christ that goes all through your life and extends until the very end. The reason that those in Hebrews weren't able to come back into the fellowship and deny Christ again and crucify him again is because they walked away and they never looked back. Their rejection of Christ continued until their last breath. When we talk about salvation, the nature and the means of salvation is a very exclusive one. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. But that exclusive nature and means of salvation is the reason why the kingdom of God can be so inclusive. The reason why on that day of Pentecost that people from all tribes and tongues were being saved by the grace and mercy of God is because it wasn't based on your geography. It wasn't based on your background. It wasn't based on your nationality, skin color, or language. It wasn't based on what you have done or what you haven't done. It wasn't based on your works, but it was based on the work that Christ Jesus had done alone so that anyone who puts their faith and their hope in Jesus can be saved. But that does mean that if someone denies the Christ who stepped out of his rightful place as the son of God, emptied himself and became nothing for us, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross, and then conquered the power of death through his resurrection. If someone rejects that Jesus who offered salvation as a free gift to all who would believe, that rejection, that denial is what keeps them from salvation. But even still, even if we have a proper understanding of salvation, even if we recognize that it is a complete and lifelong denial of the gospel that is this sin that leads to death and this sin of unforgiveness, 
those questions still arise. That understanding that salvation is by Christ alone, from grace, through faith. That it's not based on what we've done, what we can do, what we should do, but on what Christ has done and our simple following after Jesus. Even recognizing that we haven't denied Christ, it can still be hard when we mess up. It can still be hard when we sin. It can still be hard when it feels like we're not enduring. And so the final word is faithfulness. Now, all of us have areas in our lives where we're really hard on ourselves. And again, the more you've experienced denial, because just in case you didn't catch on, I have been denied a few times in my life in a lot of different areas. And once that happens to a certain amount of, to us a certain amount of times, we begin to become very hard on ourselves in different areas and we become our own worst enemies and our own worst critics. And so maybe you're incredibly hard on yourself about diet and exercise. Maybe you're really hard on yourself about the way that you work at your job and your performance and your occupation or the way that you perform in your school and your grades. Maybe it's about how you parent or what kind of spouse you are. We all have areas in our lives where we don't feel like we stack up, where we don't feel like we measure what we want to measure, and we're really hard on ourselves. And I think one of the places where that happens the most often in the life of followers of Christ is in our spiritual life particularly on the way that we live and the outward works that we do. We have a really bad habit as Christians of just stepping on that scale, spiritually speaking. And we grade ourselves day by day, moment by moment, trying to decide if we've met the standard. Okay, am I good enough today? Have I done what it takes to call myself a Christian today? Have I earned God's favor? Have I earned God's affection? Have I checked all the boxes? Have I done all the things the right way? And we measure ourselves over and over and over again. And what we're going to find is that we never really fully stack up. And so then we start to have the negative side effects of that. The guilt and the shame. of Jesus died for me. And I'm not returning that in full. I'm not living worthy to the calling that he's given me. I'm not meeting the standard. I'm not who I'm supposed to be. So maybe I'm not even saved. Maybe it's finally gotten to the point where God's patience and steadfast love is just spent. Maybe that love that he lavished on me and the kindness that he pours out on me, maybe I've finally reached the bottom of that barrel. And so we start to be wrecked with guilt and shame and uncertainty and a total lack of assurance. But not only does that affect us spiritually, but that can manifest itself in depression and anxiety. But not only does that affect us in a personal sense, but it begins to leak out and affect how we exist in community. Because what happens is when we start to measure ourselves, we need a good guidepost. And oftentimes we don't tend to look to God as that guidepost, we look to other people. And so we start to compare ourselves to others. Maybe saying, okay, well, I'm better than this person, but I'm not as good as this person. And when we start to measure ourselves and compare ourselves to others, it puts some tension in the midst of our community. And it leads to us being bitter. It leads to us being jealous. It leads to us being self-conscious and ashamed. And that bitterness starts to lead to distance from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Distance from our church and ultimately distance from God. But we've gotten it 
all wrong. This idea of moralism and works-based salvation has so intertwined itself in our Christianity that we allow it to pull us away from the truth of the gospel. And Paul lays it out for us right here. In verse 13, he says, if we are faithless, he doesn't even say unfaithful. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. When you have been saved by God's grace, on the days when you are not very faithful, he is. On the days when you don't live very righteously, he does. On the days when you don't show grace and mercy, he does. On the day when you don't forgive as you should, he does. On the days when you give in to gossip and slander and malice and hatred and prejudice, he is still faithful. On the day where you go where you shouldn't go, on the days where you do what you shouldn't do, on the days where you say what you shouldn't say, on the days when your life doesn't reflect the Christ who saved you, he does. And thanks be to God that my salvation doesn't rest on my power to keep it any more than it rests on my power to achieve it, but he is faithful. But why? Why would God be that kind of God for us? Why would he not hold us to that standard? Why would he not expect that we would keep ourselves saved after he did all the work to save us? Because if you are a follower of Christ, he has made a declaration of love and salvation and holiness over your life. And he cannot deny himself. Paul doesn't say he will not. Paul says that he cannot deny himself, that God cannot act against his own covenants, that God cannot act against his own promises. As we just sang today, and I was really curious if Olivia had just read all of my sermons somehow before him because so many of those themes are just drenched in this passage here. We are reminded that all of God's promises are yes and amen. And if he were to turn his back from one of them, he would cease to be himself. And so God has given a promise of salvation to those who have trusted in Christ, and he cannot deny that promise. And the pushback there is always, well, won't this make us okay with our sin? Isn't this just a, a description of cheap grace? Well, no, this is a description of free grace. Grace that was quite expensive for God as he paid the ultimate price by giving his one and only son. But a grace that is given to us cheaper than cheap. A grace that is given to us freely. And if your question is, is an understanding of this kind of grace going to lead me into a comfort with my sin? Then you don't quite understand the fullness of grace. Paul asked this question because Paul understood the freeness of grace. In Romans, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That there is grace to cover a multitude of sins. And then he follows that up with a question. He says, so what do we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace abounds all the more? No. If you've been set free from sin, then you should live as you've been set free from sin. 
But the problem is in so many of our lives, we don't live as though we're free from sin. We live as though we are trying to pay off that debt even still. That that sin is still shackled to our bodies and holding us back. And yes, we've been forgiven. And yes, God has saved us, but I'm still carrying all this weight and I'm trying to pay God back so that I can earn his favor and affection, forgetting that God has paid our debt in full. A God that is this loving, A God that is this faithful is a God that his children will long to follow because he takes our debt, he takes our chains, he takes our weight, and he doesn't just make the load lighter, but Jesus says, give me your burden. Jesus says, take on my burdens because they are light and I'll take on yours because I can bear them for you. No, when we see this promise that if we are faithless, he remains faithful This should drive our hearts to being as faithful as we possibly can. This should call us to lay down our fear, to lay down our shame, to lay down our obedience that is driven by legalism, and to begin following Christ in freedom, knowing that I'm not faithful so that he'll love me more. I'm not obedient so that he'll like me more. I don't love my neighbor so that God will love me more. I do these things because I want to reflect my father who is faithful even when I'm not. And so that means in those times when I am faithless, in those times when I am sinful, I know that those sins have been forgiven for, through Christ once and for all that when I confess my sins, that he is faithful to pick me up and keep me moving, that those things don't damage my relationship with God, those things don't weaken my salvation, those things don't put me at risk for falling away, but the God who loved me and saved me is the kind of God who leaves the fold of 99 and chases down the one, and the Holy Spirit of God is gonna bring me back time and time again, no matter how far I wander, no matter how far I stray, no matter how far I drift, no matter how far down I fall, he is faithful and capable to pick me up and keep me moving forward, because even when I am faithless, he is faithful. When I'm weak, he's strong. When I'm blind, he can see. And he who began the good work in me is refining me and sanctifying me and justifying me and leading me towards the day of salvation. And so because of that, I can have the freedom and you can have the freedom to love Christ and fall in love with his grace and mercy, not being afraid of the cheap and free grace poured out on us. And then using that as motivation to go out and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to serve him for the gospel and glorify him with everything that we have because we have been set free for freedom's sake. Faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what saves us, continues saving us, and will one day finish that salvation in the lives of all those who have trusted in Christ for that salvation. The gospel begins with death. We are spiritually dead. But God, with his richness of love and mercy and kindness, makes us alive in Christ. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not based on our works or our efforts, but by grace and grace alone. 
And so if you're here with us this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ before, maybe you came with a checklist of all the reasons why God could never love you, all the reasons why Jesus could never save you. On the other side of that checklist, all you need to know is that Christ is enough. That it's not about what you've done, but what about what he has done for you. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus before or gone through the waters of baptism, then know that it is just that simple. That it is a gift that he gives to you. And if you need to trust and follow Jesus for salvation, please either put something in the comment section below. And I know that's a bold move, but we have deacons and church members that are ready and willing to talk to you about what it means to be saved. Or you can just reach out to me personally and just ask that simple question. What must I do to have eternal life? And be met with the answer that Christ has done it for you. And we'll talk about what it means to follow after him. But not only does it begin with Christ and is offered freely through grace, he has sealed it with confidence that anyone who has put their faith in Jesus can know that they are saved once and for all. But because we have a tendency to forget that, he affirms that by our works. He affirms that through our church. He affirms that through the whisper of the constant, constant, beautiful calling of the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded that this salvation is kept by God's faithfulness and fulfilled in eternity. And so if you're watching this this morning and you've had those questions of what if, or how can I know, or this is what I've done, then remember Christ is enough and rest in the hope that even in the midst of the doubts that God is giving you the assurance that you belong to him if you are a follower of Christ. If you're here and you've been obedient for the sake of obedience, Scared that if you don't do the right things, say the right things, act the right way, or if you do the wrong thing too many times, then God is going to turn on his back on you. Know that even when you are faithless, he is faithful. And recognize that as freedom to live life the way that you want to. Because if you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to teach our hearts to want to follow after him. And the way that we want to live is a way that honors and glorifies God that loves and serves our neighbors and that shares the gospel with the world. And so take hold of that freedom that Christ has taken the guilt and the shame of our sins and cast them away as far as the East is from the West and follow after him in faithfulness and endure until the end when one day he'll take off the works and the hardships and the weight of endurance and put on our heads a crown as we reign with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that it's all about you. Salvation comes strictly from you. God, I just want to pray again, that anyone who needs salvation, that you would save them by your grace, anyone who needs assurance, that you would assure them with your faithfulness. And anyone who is struggling and striving in vain out of legalism and fear, that you would help them to work in freedom and that we would follow you with joy and passion until the day when we get to lay down our works and take on your rest.
So God, help us to reject that denial. Help us to be a people of endurance and to trust in your faithfulness. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.